Thanks, guys. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Isaiah 55. If you're going to use a pew Bible right in front of you there, it's page 1148. I don't know if you know, this is the last Sunday with Nicole, our piano player singer for a while. Um, their car is packed up. They're almost officially moved out of my house. And um, they're going to be going to Minneapolis to do ministry. You guys have been a huge blessing to us and to our kids in a really big way. So we're really— yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not nearly as glad to see you leave as we thought we'd be. So. <clears throat> Sorry. All right, Isaiah 55. This is a, an oracle. This is the Lord speaking directly to his people. In Isaiah 55, it says this. Come, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what, does not, what is not bread or your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, in nations that do not know you will hasten to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out with, in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. All right, I need to do some—I need to talk about some high point stuff at the end of this sermon. And so this is going to be a little bit more demanding than usual because there's not going to be as many funny stories and so on, okay? But hopefully at the end, we're go it's going to be inspiring as if though I knew how to do that. So um, Isaiah 55, we could, I mean, we could almost preach this whole series of the gospel through the Bible. There's four different gospel presentations in this chapter in a way. Um, but here's one way to start with it. What is the chapter as a whole? And it's this. The chapter as a whole is probably the oldest open invitation you'll ever receive. Right? 
the, the, the first verse or two starts out just very openly, and it is an invitation. It says, come. You who don't have what you need, who are spending everything that you've got on things that won't provide what you really need, come to me and I will give it to you freely, right? And then the whole rest of the other three sections are all arguments pleading with us why we should accept this invitation, right? Have you ever invited somebody to something that you really thought they'd say yes right away, and then you had to, like, argue for why they should accept your generosity and hospitality, right? It's still fun, I think. I just like to argue. Um, So I want to go through these four sections um, so that we can really look at this passage and kind of see how it all works together and what it's meant to do. But I don't want you to forget, as we go through this, it's an invitation to you. And so it starts with this one, this, essentially this claim that the best is free and out of love. The best that there can ever be, the best that can ever happen to you or be part of your life is free. And that's not what we normally do, and so God actually does have to say this, right? So it says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without costs. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Fair is like, a, it's just kind of an old richest affair that's kind of like an old kind of thing. It's not slang. It's, it's good English, but fair is just the food that's available at whatever f- food event this is, right? You're going to eat the best. Um, so the contrast of those verses really is the contrast between there's somebody who's being extraordinarily generous, freely giving the highest quality, And then the alternative is laboring and laboring and laboring and laboring for something that really ultimately produces futility. Now I'll talk a little bit more about that trade that we tend to make as humans when I talk about Ecclesiastes in about a month. But one of the things that's interesting about this is right when he says that everything's free, he sticks with the buy language, right? And you're kind of like, um, question, why is there buying when there's no money involved? Right? And I think it's, re- it's, re- it's really clear why they're still buying when there's no money involved. Because there's still an exchange, and that exchange uh, presumes a decision. And it presumes alternatives. Whenever you buy something, usually, there are alternatives on what you can spend your money on. I don't know about—you may have—there may be somebody here who has enough money that when you buy something, it's not a decision of alternatives. If you do, then talk to me after. I'd love to talk to you. Um, but— for most of us, almost everything we buy, there's a decision of alternatives, and that's what buying is. It's a choice that you make to acquire something, to lose something, and it's a decision of alternatives. And, and so that's the invitation. The invitation is to make a choice and to stop picking the terrible alternative and to accept the f- what's freely given of God's infinitely be- better alternative. And so then he spends the rest of this passage essentially arguing, right, why his alternative is the better alternative, Right? So the first of those three sections is this one. And that is that his faithful love is an everlasting promise. It says, Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Now that may—if you don't have any idea who David is or how his faithful love got promised to David, that may not be very inspiring, right? Especially if you're a girl, you're like, you're going to love me like you loved a guy. That doesn't sound as exciting as you might think. Right? And so the only other place in the Old Testament where the language is very similar to this, 
same kind of words and phrases is actually in a chapter in Psalms, Psalm 89. And there's two sections worth looking at. This is the first verses. I will sing, this is an Israelite writing a praise song to God. He says, I will celebrate of the Lord's great love. It's translated singular in your Bibles. It's plural, actually, in Hebrew. It doesn't make that big a difference until you get to Isaiah 55. The great love's forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known throughout all generations. And verse 3, you said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Right? Do Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that language, my servant? If you've been to church here the last three weeks or so, we've been talking about the servant is this figure all the way through Isaiah, chapter 42, chapter 49, crescendoing in chapter 53, where the servant Messiah comes, who's clearly Jesus, and he dies for the sins of a new people he's going to make. Chapter 54 last week was about the new people he makes, and chapter 55 is the invitation for you to be among those people. You see how this flows? Who is my servant David, right? And then several verses later, it says, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, my rock, and my savior. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. Right? So follow, because verses four and five are verses people tend to kind of read over, and they don't make a lot of sense to them because of how it says it. It's probably because of the translation. So, my faithful love promised to David. What does that signify for us? Here's what it signifies. It says, see, I, that's God, have made him, that's David, a witness to the peoples. See, peoples is plural here and here. That's very important. That is, David, now this is a little ambiguous because have made could mean I have done it just this second, or it can mean I did it back then, right? Because this is quite a while after David was dead, right? It's the, it's the full past tense. So it's, see, I made him, David, a witness to the people's meaning that when da- David is the greatest king Israel ever had, right? If you know anything about the history of Israel, David is the greatest king they ever had. Wasn't perfect, long way from perfect, but he was the greatest king they ever had. And God lifted him up to be a ruler over this great nation of people. It was the most justly and most faithfully the nation ever lived. And it affected all the kingdoms and peoples around them. You see? And so the argument here is, just like I promised this to David, and I said, he would ultimately, his line, there would be a king in his line that would reign over all the peoples by reigning over a people that believed and belonged to me, right? And he's, and he's saying, listen, surely you, so you see the transition now? He's saying, in the past, I raised up this person, David, and he was a ruler, not over, just over my people, Israel, but over the peoples, Right? A leader and commander of the peoples. You see how that word is used twice? That's not very economic, is it? It's because it's meant to show emphasis. David ruled over and was a witness of who God was to more people than just the Israelites. He was a witness to the nations. And then see the transition here? Surely you, that is, people who will be under the new king that is in the line of David, the son of David, the Messiah servant who becomes King Jesus, those who become part of his people, chapter 54, invited by this invitation, chapter 55, you will summon nations you know not, and nations that you do not know will hasten to you. Do you see the, do you see the relationship here? David was a commander and leader and therefore a witness to the peoples. But now you, much greater, you will summon nations that in David's day we had never even heard of. You see what he's saying? We'd never even heard of these people. They'd never heard of you. You'd never heard of them. But there's going to be a new people who are going to be so 
endowed with splendor from God, the Holy One of Israel, that you will go out to all nations and all nations will hear about you and come in. Now, this is kind of important because you see how this invitation gets non-individualistic really fast, right? The first invitation is totally individualistic. It's an invitation to you, right? You come. You believe. You be part of this new people. You believe in King Jesus, right? And then it's like, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to become part of this people, and this is how beautiful God will make that people, and the result will be that all nations will hear and many nations will come. That's meant to be really good news, right? The third is this, that he isn't like us. God isn't like us. That's part of the good news, and that he pardons people freely. Because part of the issue here is the first invitation is an invitation to each, right? And that's clearly not literally what this passage is about, right? It's not about eating in the first place, right? It transitions to this. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, for he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. So what is— remember in verse 2, 3, it says, You who don't have any money, come and buy without cost, right? What's that referring? It's referring to something that's free, right? So what literally is being referred to in the metaphor of eating, right? The whole purpose is eating is a great metaphor for salvation because when you get hungry and then you eat and you're satisfied from the inside out, it points to something which is a true human desire. We have longing. We want to be filled and satisfied, right? Now, what ultimately does that for the human soul, spirit, and being on all levels? And you see, now it gets literal. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, you might be like, well, that's still a little vague. Okay, well, how about this one? Call on him while he is near. <coughs> near refers to the, that the, that the invitation is present. That is, right now, you're receiving the invitation. Okay, that means the Lord is near in that his invitation is near, and right then call on him, meaning speak up. That's pretty clear. You speak up and you say, yes, please, I would like that. Right? And what are you asking for? Here's what you're asking for. This is what it looks like to call on him and to seek the Lord. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. Right? So one of the things I really like about the Bible— is that it doesn't really mince words. It's pretty direct, right? The first criteria of coming to Jesus, of accepting this invitation, is that you get to put on the name tag that says the wicked. Right? It's like, I mean, it's like going to a party and like your name is the wicked and you get to peel the back off of it and, and put it on there and you get to wear that the rest of your life, right? And and this is one of the reasons why um, self-righteousness just doesn't do for Christians, right? Because it's not that Christians are more self-righteous than anybody else. It's that while Christians are being self-righteous, we have a little tag on, a little name tag that says, the wicked, right? And when we're acting like we're fantastic, while we're wearing the name tag that says, the wicked, it just doesn't, it doesn't really work. But you know what always happens to people, I don't know about you, but like I'm, I have kind of absent professor mentality, except I'm not a professor. And have, have you ever gone to a party and you put the name tag on and then you forget it's on there and you put it in the wash? Right? My wife isn't a fan of that. That's why Lisa, for the last like five Explorer classes, has bought name tags that don't stick. 
It's not, it's not because we bought bad materials. It's because she doesn't want to destroy your laundry. And, but that's what happens all the time. You put a name tag on. I've done this a million times, like, not a million, obviously. But I put a name tag on, and then I'll, I'll be at, like, the next thing, and they're like, so you're Nick, huh? I'm like, oh, I saw the name tag on, right? But you see, this is part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is, you want to come? That's fabulous. Put it on. Because this is what you are. This is what I am. You don't come self-important. You don't come self-righteous. You don't come even, because otherwise you will come and you will think that when you believe in Jesus and follow him, you have put God deeply into your debt because you are so wonderful to submit to becoming a Christian. Which is ridiculous, but which is what we all really think oftentimes in here. And we forget because this is not in our sight line. And on that basis, just listen, if you will just, you put that sticker on, you go, I'm going this way and I realize I need to go that way. I realize that for all these things about me, God is saying, I'm, there's a bunch of things he's saying, you're wrong. And there's a bunch of things about which he's saying to, about himself, I'm right. And of which we have to change our mind and we need to go with him. And he says, listen, if you'll just, if you'll just do that, here's the result. God freely pardons. What, what is the thing that satisfies the soul that is really what we need that leads to everything else? It's, in Christianity, it is one thing. The heart and bottom foundation on which everything else is built is this. God pardons. He forgives freely. And so central is this to everything that the Bible is about, everything that Jesus has done, everything God has ever said in Scripture, is that in the very next lines of this passage, he has to go on to say this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You think about that. See, there's a lot of Christians. I remember when I was in college, I had become a Christian, and I was memorizing some verses, and I picked out these verses because I heard somebody read them. I never read the whole chapter of Isaiah 55. I just really liked these verses, and I thought they'd be good to memorize, because if your girlfriend dumps you, or you lose your job, or your test doesn't come back with the grade you wanted, or your business doesn't clear the profits this quarter that you wanted, you can always quote this to yourself and feel a little better, right? And in some ways, that's totally true, because in terms of God's providence, His ways are higher than—it's generally true, but it's not what this— verse means in this passage. In this passage, it means this. God is forgiving, and we're not. That's what it means. It means you don't forgive people, not, not really, not deeply. When somebody hurts you, you don't long to, to care for them. When, I think I've used this example before. There's this place in Crime and Punishment where the main Antagonist Raskolnikov admits to this girl, Sonia, who's a prostitute, that he's killed these two women, one of whom is her friend. And he expects her to be the last person in his life to finally recoil and care nothing for him. And the first words out of her mouth are, what have you done to yourself, she says, and embraces him. Right? Like that, that is not what we're like, this passage is saying. God says to the wicked person, come, 
buy and eat? Why strive? Why labor? Why give yourself for something that's futile, that's not going to feed you? I will include you into this nation of people that I'm creating out of nothing through the servant Jesus who died for all of them to bring them in so they could be pardoned, be a new people. I could so beautify that the world would see them and wish to come and be part of it. And I will make you part of it. You just have to realize where you are and who you are and turn around and come back to me and call out for an acceptance of my invitation and I will freely pardon you. And that's not what we're like. And God has to say right when he gets done, listen, I know you don't believe that because that's not what people are like. And so let me just tell you, I'm not like people. The fourth is that his word accomplishes impossible purposes. I didn't mean to alliterate that. It just sort of happened. Um, Right after he says that his ways are not our ways, it comes out of verses right before it where he goes, look, I'm not like you. And then he says that, and then he says something else. If you notice Isaiah 55, you could put arrows at the end of it, that it all points back to verses 7 and 8, even though verses 7 and 8 are a throwaway line. Verses 7 and 8 aren't part of the argument of Isaiah 55, but all of Isaiah 55 points back to that basic truth. None of this makes sense to us because God isn't like us. Thank God. So here he says, right after my ways aren't your ways, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, And do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Right? So, I mean, depending on what the groundhog sees or whatever, and no matter how long winter endures um, in the unsunlit lands of northern central Wisconsin, um, at some point— Winter has to break, the snow will melt, and it will water, and the grass will grow green. That is going to happen. Doesn't matter how long winter holds on, ultimately it must break, and there will be grass and leaves. And what God says, here's another thing that's not like you. You will labor and labor and strive and strive and labor and labor and strive and strive for something you think that you can get, and it is not inevitable. And it will, and if you stay on the way that isn't the way into this invitation, it will be futile, and you will not find what you ultimately need. You will not eat the food your soul requires, and you will not enjoy the free pardon from which everything else beautiful is built. And he says, for me, that's not the case. And it's another way he's not like us. When he speaks and when he acts, something happens. And now you could say, well, okay, but still, you're like, we have to cooperate with it, right? Well, sort of, yeah. But actually the point that God makes in this chapter is the opposite of that point. It's actually the quit trying to earn this, okay? Just quit trying to, to earn it. You know, one of the things that, that's part of the world we live in right now is 
there was a time in America, especially in the American church, where morality was seen kind of individualistically. And so if you were a good person, you had good personal morality, right? And if you were like a Christian and maybe a fundamentalist-ish Christian, you know, you didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls or boys that do, right? And so there was this kind of like, I have a good personal morality. As time has gone on, um, there's been this move towards corporate morality, which is really fun because as long as you vote for the right person, you can feel like you're a good person no matter what your individual personal life is like. Just awesome. Um, But one of the things that it's produced is this idea that like, I'm a good person because I'm somehow involved in saving the world, right? Like instead of saying, no, I'm a good person because there's a certain personal morality that I live up to, and if everybody else lived up to it, we would have a good society. Instead, I'm part of making the good society because I've liked the right things, or I've used my Twitter account for those purposes, or I voted for the right party, or I so on. And I'm not, I'm not picking on Democrats. Republicans think the same thing because they think if they, you know, elect Republicans and we have more business and everybody's life will get better because everybody will be richer. Both parties ultimately believe the same thing in this sense, that I, through outside of myself, I'm involved in something that makes everything better, right? And the difficulty with, with that is it can, it, it makes us feel like the world is ours to save and the world is not ours to save. And it makes us feel as though, it, 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 was, it was funny, a, a couple weeks ago I was at Bryan College and I said, listen, if you believe the world is yours to save, you will be the new generation of legalists. You think you're the first generation that really loves other people that live beyond your borders. You think you're the first group of people that ever thought that sex trafficking should be stopped. You think that, and I know you think that, and you'll grow out of that, but here's what, you, what will be produced by this new, newer theology that being a Christian means saving the world. You will become the new legalists. You will forget the gospel, and inside you will really believe that you are as right with Jesus as you are stopping sex trafficking. And that is completely false, and the world isn't yours, and it's not yours to save, and that isn't even technically your job. Now, the response to that can be, because I had— of course, I like to blow things up and then have conversations afterwards, is, well, wait, now wait, you're gonna—are you telling us not to do this stuff? Or like, are you—I mean, here, here's what you're gonna produce. You're gonna produce this church and these Christians that like, well, they just—well, it's not mine to save, so I don't have to do anything, right? No. What I'm producing is—what I want to produce is a church that lives out the gospel, not out of a new legalism and fear and pride that I will be good enough if I change the world enough, but that because they really believe the gospel and because God has really endowed them with splendor as they have freely received, they will freely give, and it's not legalism. And all the things that really keep the world from being changed, that is, the separation that comes from everybody's self-righteousness and their little way of fixing the world so that nobody can work together on the levels necessary to do it, will begin to melt away and will actually make a little progress. When you get to the end of this passage, you get this last, which is almost like a throwaway section— that most people don't pay attention to because the metaphor is weird, because nobody knows what trees clapping their hands probably means. <laughs> right? Unless you're, like, from out west and you've seen poplars. Right? Th- this is the very next verses, and here's what I want you to notice about this passage. Almost every verbal idea in this passage is passive. You will go out in joy, 
and be led forth in peace. That is, you'll walk out of your house and you'll be happy. You'll, you'll be happy. And while you're walking out of your house being happy, nobody will kill you because there will be peace and you'll be led forth into it, right? And then it says, the mountains and the hills will, notice that word, burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And you see that the, the, the picture is you walking out and being led and the mountains and the hills are just there and the trees are just there and there's something pregnant inside of them that's bursting forth and it just comes out and it all around you and you just experience it. Right? And you, you're doing nothing. You're walking. And then in verse 13, it talks about the reversal of the curse. You remember Genesis 3, when the fall happens and God says, now the thorn bushes and the thistles are going to grow and you're going to sweat and you're going to work for everything that you get out of the ground because you're under a curse. Right? So the next verses are the, are the, are the coming reversal of the curse. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow, and this will be for the Lord's renown. Remember earlier in the passage it said that he would make with the people who came to this invitation, he said, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, right? I'll make agreement with you forever, and I will endow you with splendor. And as he pours into this people by his own doing— what they freely receive, they walk out into it, and it just happens. In the midst of that, he says, that will happen, and it will be for my name, he says. People will know who I am, and it will be an everlasting sign, right? David's new people would be a witness, communication word. This, when I endow them with beauty, this will be a sign, communication word. And both would be everlasting. The point of the end of this passage is, is straightforwardly, you don't do it. One of the reasons many people in this room are really tired of Christian faith or have sworn it off or don't want to talk about it is because, because the version of Christian faith that was either sold to you or that you believe in isn't, isn't the one God is offering in this passage. It's just not. If, if you feel crushed under it, it's, that's not the gospel. In the gospel, all the generosity comes from God. It all just flows from him. And when Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them to do stuff. He said, listen, I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cast out demons. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to do this stuff. On what basis? The, here was the last line he said to them. He said, freely you received, now freely give. This is how, this is how Christians save the world. God sovereignly, because of his own generosity, does all the heavy lifting, and he gives wildly and generously, and without threat or comment of pride, he transforms the heart of the one who believes that when they freely receive, they freely give. And that's beautiful. Now, the question I want to ask in just a couple of minutes here is, what would it look like if we were a people that believed that? This is one of the reasons why, like, I've been here three and a half years, and like every sermon is the gospel, right? And I've said it many times that, here's why, because 
The way we grow in faith is by believing the gospel. The way people get saved is they believe the gospel. The way we grow in faith is by believing the gospel. So what would it be like if we believed, if all of us Christians and people who are here and not openly Christian, what would it look like if we believed that? What would that do to you personally, right? Here's what it would do. It destroys any chance that you ever having pride in yourself. You will never have, you won't just have a low self-esteem, you won't have self-esteem, right? Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself, it's being self-forgetful. It's not caring about the question of whether or not you're good or bad. You're wearing the name tag, you are the wicked. But the name tag on this side says, you know, part of the new people, I belong to the second David. So, it doesn't matter. You don't have—and here's the thing. Guess what? You don't have to live inside your own head. It doesn't matter if you're doing great right now. Right? You can stop thinking about that, and you can just live. You can live out of joy. You can live out of thankfulness. You can live out of generosity because God has been freely generous with you. You can live out of thankfulness. There are a thousand motivations between fear and pride that you can have if we really believe this message. And you will be, we will be, the reason the church, the reason we aren't as beautiful together as we could be is directly related to whether or not we believe the gospel. Okay? An ugly church is a church that doesn't believe the gospel. To the extent to which the gospel is really in you, you become beautiful. That word goes out, That snow comes down and it waters. It does it. It does it. The only way you can not let your lawn is if you shovel all the snow off of it. Okay? You have to actively resist it. When we believe the gospel, it'll change us. Right? Now, I want to talk a little bit about High Point Church. So if you're kind of like visiting or whatever, then this part may not be as exciting as the last part has been, which may be scary for you. Um, the 60s are history for me. I'm 36. I was born in 77. So the, hist- the 60s are history for me. But I've been told all my life that it was the moment of the, the cultural revolution. It's when, it, when there was a counterculture and everything changed and there was this, well, uh, that's all very interesting. I'm glad the boomers have the, that claim to fame. Um, but I don't know if you know this, but High Point Church is 54 years old. And so it was actually started the spring of 1960. And now you may say, if you're skeptical or cynical. Well, yeah, but you know, one counterculture is one and the other is lost, hasn't it? Well, maybe, but we are going to baptize a record number of people for High Point today. So, what's, what's, here's what's really happening. Yeah, that is cool. Um, here's what's really happening. There was a culture that was in the middle that is dying away. And there is a more rampant secularism, and there is a more profound spiritual, biblical Christianity. Both are growing. In the, in the United States right now, and that's just reality. Um, but part of the question is, if we are part of this greater phenomenon that Jesus is making, if, if Isaiah 55 would lead us to believe Romans 1.16, where Paul said, I, I believe, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because I believe it's the power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, because in it, there's a righteousness of God that is made known from first to last. So let me, let me take you through a couple of things that are going on. I, I don't know if you, 
if you know this, but so, if you've been here for a couple of years, a couple of years ago we had, on Martin Luther King Sunday, we had a joint service with an African-American church from Sun Prairie. It was called Faith, Hope, and Love then. Now it's called The Faith Place. They're still doing hope and love, but it's just not in the name. Right. Which is good news for us, since we don't have any of them in our name, right? So, <clears throat> I, um, I got a letter from Pastor Rayford this week, kind of about that relationship. And I want—let me read it real fast. A few years ago, I felt led of the Lord to reach out to a few Caucasian senior pastors in Dane County. As my secretary made the initial calls, only three men responded. They were Pastor Gibson and two others. I dutifully set up the meetings. Ironically, my meeting—my meeting at High Point was the final meeting. The previous meetings were very warm and comfortable. And by the time I came to High Point, I had created an expectation of how this meeting would go. Boy, was I wrong. I was not prepared for the uniqueness that is your pastor. Apparently, this is contrasted to warm and comfortable, so. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I showed up in my suit and tie and with my briefcase and business card. Pastor Gibson, not so much. <laughs> then there's a couple paragraphs about me, and then he says this. Additionally, High Point has been a godsend blessing for our church. Our joint service from a couple of years ago remains one of our greatest memories. It is never, there's never been a time that we've needed your church's assistance that you did not exceed our expectations, whether it was assisting us financially through the difficult construction season, purchasing the floor for our new building that we could not have afforded to do on our own, or allowing us to host a special Bible study for those members who simply cannot make it to Sun Prairie for the midweek service. High Point has always been there for us when we needed friends. Now, you, you, okay, so what's the Bible study thing? Here's what happened. So their church is full, right? That church that we, we help pay for the carpet, they're more than 80% full on Sunday mornings. And so they're like, well, what does God want us to do next? Well, we might need to do another campus. What's the farthest place in Dane County that really has a population away from us? Well, Sun Prairie, so it's the west side, right? And so they're like, well, maybe we need to do a campus over there. So they came to us. They said, look, we have people who are from the west side. We'd love to have a midweek Bible study, but can we also have like a Bible study where we're like building to see if we want to have a second campus on the west side um, to have like their starting meeting? And I, and I was like, well, I mean, you know, this is going to cost us like four bucks a night when you guys come because we'll have to have the lights on, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, the answer is like, of course, right? So, <clears throat> For two or three weeks, they've been having that meeting back there. Okay, so what happened was, so that happens, and here's the problem. That's a political nightmare among the churches because we've just had these two really cool experiences in Mount Zion. They had lost their pastor like six months ago, and they've been losing people for like six months. And so now we just, I just made a deal with my African-American buddy from Sun Prairie to start a church on the west side when this other west side church is losing members, right? Do you see how that goes? And so all the political training I would have ever received is just like, you just got to say no, or this is all just going to blow up. You got to say no, and you just got to like stay out of it a little bit, right? And of course, my attitude is like, forget that. That's stupid. Like, that's not why I got into ministry, right? And I know I'm like, by this point, I'm presuming that you're game enough to try stuff that I'm going to try something, right? So instead of saying no to Harold and his church, what I did was I said, well, we just need to talk to Mount Zion. So we got together with um, one of their deacons and said, hey, look, this is what's happening. This brother wants to do this. We think it's for the best reasons, but is there anything we do to help you guys? And they were like, well, I don't know. And I was like, well, you guys don't have an interim pastor yet. What if our associate pastor, if you don't know this, our associate pastor is an African-American guy who has some good relationships over at Mount Zion. What if he came over and like preached enough to give you some like continuity in your church till you get an interim pastor and get that role? And they were like, well, we'll think about that. So they prayed about it. They came back and they were like, that would actually be wonderful, right? And they're like, so how much do we have to pay him? We're like, no, no, we'll pay him. 
We already paid a salary. We'll just keep paying it. He'll just come over to your place and preach. And they were like, okay, I've never heard of that happening anywhere in our, in the history of anywhere, but sounds great. Okay, good. So, so Lloyd is there preaching right now, right? Um, and so one of, so here's another thing that happened. <clears throat> in, in December, we had our year in gift. Remember that? And we asked for like 80-something thousand dollars, and the church gave 120. Remember? And so, yeah, that was great. Awesome. So, <laughs> so we got, to, we got together on staff when all that money came in, and Gene and Lisa and I and some of the other staff are sitting around, and Lloyd, and, and Gene was like, look, I mean, this is great news. Can you believe how generous the church was? I was like, well, yeah, but like now I'm confused because that money's for something. We don't know what it's for. Like, there's no way just $40,000 showed up, right? I mean, like, th- like, God has something. We just don't know what it is, so let's, you know, keep our eyes open. So, meanwhile, um, this is kind of playing out. And now, now, I got to put this in more context for some of you who are newer. If you've been here since I got here, then it may seem like High Point Church has been kind of healthy and doing fine. Well, yeah, that happened before I got here. Um, what happened was High Point Church went through a terrible decade. It nearly imploded. Um, and at a moment when we had zero money, we were actually in the neighborhood of $40,000 in the real red. Not budgetarily, but like cash flow. Um, we had an interim pastor come in named Bill Lurch. If you didn't—some of you have never met him. He's the reason we're here in God's providence, okay? Um, I would already have resigned and not be the pastor here anymore if Bill Lurch had not done what he did, okay? If I ever would have come here in the first place. But what we found out was is that how important it is to have, a, have an interim pastor when a pastor leaves to like do healing and bring the church together and do the kind of work you need specific training for. So when the new senior pastor comes in, the church has stopped comparing them to the last pastor and will compare them to the interim pastor who is intentionally not what you're looking for in a senior pastor. So she'd be like, I really like this guy instead of he's not like the last guy. There's, but there's all, I mean, Bill Lurch like met with people and I, I had people tell me after the last service, they're like, man, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that Bill Lurch talked to, and I came to this thing, he prayed for us, and I, for, I was able to forgive somebody, and, and High Point Church survived because of that. Now, it just so happens, it just so happens, that we happen to have two big events here with a church that we haven't done anything with for years, where we got, to, Lloyd and I got to spend some time with somebody on the deacon board of that church who's going through exactly what we were going through for slightly different reasons, is in a financial place, not as bad as we were in, but similar, going through the same kind of things, requiring the same sort of helpful expertise, and we are right here ready to do it, and they're a similar church across town. And so here's the way the plan works out. Right now, Lloyd is preaching there, and the elders last time we met released him to preach there three Sundays a month so they could have real good continuity. They're going to bring in an interim pastor, but they can't afford it right now. So they have to spend a certain amount of months trying to save up so that when that interim pastor comes, they can cover it for the rest of the way until they're really on board and they can bring in their senior pastor. Which means there is a wedge of money that's not big, but it's not trivial either, that needs to go in there. And and they don't have that, but we do. Because we have a year-end gift that came in for something that we didn't know what it was. So, and I think it's the 23rd when we have our congregational meeting, this is going to be one of the items that I bring up. Because I don't think this—technically, it's in the elders' hands because we decided that the elders would have discretion over anything overgiven. But nobody expected it to be $40,000, and nobody would have expected this to be one of the things we possibly could spend it on. And because I believe this is an act of faith, I think we should all make it together, not just a few people in a room on Tuesday nights. So, 
And you can just ask yourself which of those things you're more excited about. The fact that we have new projectors today, which are high def and actually project wider than ever before. (laughs) Right? Which they are awesome. Sorry, Lisa. (laughs) But, or we can do something that honestly I've never heard of any church ever doing. I've never heard of this. Now, I'm sure it's happened, but it's not normal. And here's the thing. I think that's a good sign. And I would refer us back to verses 7 and 8 of this passage. When God says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, I don't do things the way you do, and when I send out my word, it accomplishes things, I think that's good evidence that if we do something for the right reasons, because we believe the gospel that we don't hear about very often, we might be on the right track. And listen, let me just tell you something right now. I have no idea how far down this rabbit hole goes, and I don't care. Okay? At every step of the way, we'll make a decision with our eyes as open as they can be. And I believe what Lewis said in the Screwtape Letters. God seeks for us to look ahead and plan for the future only so far as we must to do our duty. Beyond that, we're imagining a future success that probably isn't going to happen so our hopes can be dashed, or a terrible future we can be terrified of that will probably never happen. What are we called to do right now? And I just think maybe this is it. And I'm excited about it, but I have no idea what's going to happen. But well, here's, what I, here's what I think is going to happen. No matter what, we're going to make some new friends. No matter what, we're going to sleep like Christians. No matter what, we can be proud in a not self-righteous way about what we're doing together. I think in every way we win, even if we totally lose, and I think we could win in a much bigger way than that. And— <clears throat> Let me say just really quickly about real estate, Viva Aqua, Aqua Viva, Viva, probably Viva, I don't know how the Spanish goes on that one. That's the Hispanic church that meets in here at two, most Sundays. And that's just, that's the thing where we've opened our doors, but we haven't already done anything with them. And they're here, and they love Jesus, but they're not, it's not going anywhere. And I hope there's some way that we can help them. I want to like provide leadership help or like some of our Spanish speakers, maybe. I don't know, I don't know what to do, but I want to help them somehow. Because here's the thing, no matter how well they're doing, Hispanic people are terribly underserved with the gospel in this county. They're terribly underserved. And I wish we could do something about that, don't you? Not because we have to or because we'd save the world if we did or we could help those poor Hispanic people, but because we freely received. And if we freely give, well, that would be great. And I'm excited to see what that could be. And with that uneloquent ending, I hope that you're still inspired. Stay for the baptisms. Let's pray. (laughs) Father— Um, I, my whole, like, my whole, a lot of my uh, growing up years, I wanted to be part of a church that did stuff that I'd never heard of, and that where we acted like you might exist, and that we did things that would fail if you didn't help, and where we read stuff. I remember hearing Rick Warren say, you only believe the parts of the Bible you do, and I just, I think that's right. And so would you help us to believe Isaiah 55, every single verse of it, every single word of it, every single clause of it, And Father, would you make that the interspiritual cellular DNA of this church, this chapter? And would you make us a people that, um, that freely give because we freely receive, people who believe in your invitation, people who believe that you're not like us and that we need to become like you, not pretend you're like us, people who give out the free invitation, who believe you freely pardon, who know that, um, the world isn't ours to save, but you will let us be part of it and that your word does accomplish what it sets out to do. And that's our hope of success. 
not that we're going to be such good servants, but that your word accomplishes what you desire and that you do the heavy lifting in the work of your own redemption. We want to be a church that sees that, rejoices in it, and does whatever can be done to spread it. We pray that the splendor that comes from a humble faith in you would happen in us more and more every day. We pray in Jesus, the Savior's name. Amen.